Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. So cinemas are open, which is hugely exciting. What are people going to see? And you know, where is the cinema that you're going to hit up first? Lots of things that have already had releases are back on the big screens, um, like Nomadland and Sound of Metal and Ammonite, which is cool because I think they're all films that will benefit from the sense of surroundedness that you can only get from the cinema. So plenty of excuses to go, um, not that you need one. But yeah, so it feels fitting that my guest this week has worked in cinemas and is an advocate for the kind of tangible film going experience. And that person is Tara Judah. Tara is a cultural critic, film programmer and curator and occasional video essayist. She was Watershed's cinema producer for two years, having freelanced in programming and editorial for the Watershed's archive classic and repertory film festival Cinema Rediscovered, which launched in 2016. Tara was also co-director at 20th Century Flex Video Shop in Bristol and programmed films for Australia's iconic single screen repertory theatre, The Aster, and for Melbourne's annual feminist film event, Girls on Film Festival. She is currently editor of critics reviews at Mubi and writes a bi-weekly column for an online journal called Ubiquarian that focuses on experimental cinema alongside documentaries and shorts and champions the forms or mediums that surprise us. We talk about being a mature student, redefining experimental cinema, criticism and film festival going in the time of a pandemic, increasing transparency around freelance rates and fees and producing work that is unique to you. I'm not going to lie, I had high expectations for this chat because Tara is such a thoughtful and critical thinker and writer and it did not disappoint. Tara contends with lots of thorny and important issues in the industry and raises lots of salient points, so I do hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 84 of Best Girl Grip. I always tend to start these podcasts in the kind of higher education realm, just because I think maybe that's where a lot of us get our first taste or sense of what we want to do with our lives, so to speak. So where did you go to university, if you did, and uh, what did you study there? I did go to university to study film, actually, and I went to King's College in London. But I went back as a mature age student, so I had already done various other things before I went back to university. I'd done a, I guess, the first year of university in Australia and then decided at the time when I was young that it probably wasn't quite the right fit for me. Did a number of other jobs, moved to England and did a number of other jobs. And then essentially I was working at CNN in a job I absolutely hated. It was, I was working in the anti-piracy activity for hotel distribution arm of like the commercial part of CNN International. So not really a department that like wildly fits with my interests, but it's where I was working at the time in London. And it was a good job. It was a decent job. You know, I'm sure if I'd stayed in that job, I'd be earning a lot more money now, but um, I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy the job. So movies had always been a passion of mine growing up. So I decided to go back to university. Um, My other interest was English literature. So I did a literature and film degree. And though it was structured at the time, because you couldn't do a straight film degree at King's at that time, actually, when I went back to university, they didn't, they do now have a very big film course, but they didn't at the time. So it was structured such that you did three quarters, pretty much English and one quarter film. But over my time there, I managed to convince them to let me do in my last year, like 50-50, I think. Um, And then I did a master's in cinema studies also at King. So I continued and then I stopped uh, because I was tired and didn't want to do a PhD. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And I'm kind of wondering what precipitated that decision to go back to university? Like, why did you feel, you know, revisiting the sort of academic path would be like the best way to reset as opposed to kind of looking for work at that stage? Well, I mean, possibly it was a stupid thing to do in that sense in that, you know, obviously educating yourself in film and literature is not helpful in terms of like earning more money or getting a career. Like I said, I would have had a better career and more money if I'd stayed at CNN, like without a doubt. But for me, university isn't about, unless you're doing vocational stuff, I don't really see the arts and humanities as um, something geared towards career progression. I'm sure lots of people disagree with that. But actually, for me, going to university was about education. I had stopped that journey in my kind of like early 20s, because it didn't feel like the right course that I was doing at the time. But it didn't mean that I was done with learning. Um, And I think because I disliked my job so much, I was sort of in that mindset that like, well, I could live in London and go to this job every day. And, you know, I could easily continue to do that. But I wouldn't, that's not really what I want to do. It's not kind of speaking to my soul. And I I felt like I missed 
literature, I missed theatre, I missed film, I missed all that kind of cultural stuff that even though you're in London, you don't always necessarily get the opportunity to go and, and engage with too much if you're working full time, etc. So I decided that, you know, going back to study would be the best way um, to kind of just reimmerse myself in it and to give myself the opportunity to read, to be honest, all the theory that I never really had the opportunity to read. I mean, that does not mean at all that I have read it all. There is still <laughs> tons that I have come nowhere near. But in terms of just sort of like re-immersing myself in that in that kind of way of thinking and also because I think a lot of workplaces are just really sadly devoid um, of that kind of critical cultural way of thinking about things um, and so I think working in an office made me more starved of it than I would have been in any other environment to be honest. And do you think going back as a mature student you kind of approached the learning process differently and you got more out of it as a result Definitely. of that? Definitely. Um, I didn't live in halls of residence. I didn't go to Freshers Week. I didn't do air. I wasn't interested in any of that. I didn't engage with any of that. I spent my time kind of like in the library or, you know, actually sort of like I'd already done the first year of uni somewhere else. So I already know what the parties and stuff were like, but I actually went to university this time to kind of really engage with my subject. So it definitely gave me a greater appreciation of it. Also, I think the position I was in financially or that I have been in financially for most of my life, it meant that like, it meant a lot to me to have the privilege to study. So I was very grateful for the access to resources and education. So I, I felt like I gave it quite a lot of my attention. I mean, that said, there were obviously like times where probably, you know, I didn't read every single reading and I didn't do all of the work. I'm not going to pretend that I was like a perfect model student the whole time. But I definitely do think going back as a mature age student meant that I was more focused on knowing that I wanted to do it. I think because when I first went to university as well, I was very much, as a lot of young people are, unsure, like what why you're doing it or what you want to get out of it. And not that I thought it would get me a job, but just that I knew I wanted to learn it so I think I had that kind of drive and focus just because I was I was yeah I was really sure that I was getting into debt spending the money on going back to university because I really wanted to do it for me and thinking about that focus and what you wanted to do after I'm wondering if you did have a sense of you know what it could lead to and whether you were striving after a, a role in particular at that stage yeah, I mean, I didn't continue the journey, but actually I did initially want to continue and do a PhD. It was always my plan to like continue in academia. And I, I probably at that point thought that I would just continue and until I got a post in a university. Mm. I did get burnt out though with doing my master's and kind of like changed my mind. But certainly from the outset, I was like, I want to go down this route. I want to read and write, but essentially read and write about films forever was what kind of like all I was really interested in that and literature. I mean, I say film, but it also, you know, literature, theatre are kind of around it. But definitely I was sort of gearing up for what I thought was a journey into academia. I yeah, changed my mind. And then what do you consider to be your first official job in film? Well, actually, I'd say my first official job in film was when I was a child. So <laughs> um, one way or another, I kind of keep finding my way back to it. But I grew up on film sets. Um, I did a lot of kind of like child acting and stuff in Australia. So um, it was always an interest of mine and always something that was kind of there. But in terms of like jobs after university that were related to film, I moved after I finished my master's to Bristol, uh, had had definitely enough of London at that point in time. And I had had enough of paying London rent. So I came to Bristol and got a job at 20th Century Flicks, which is the video store that's still operational here. It still is one of the few places in the world where you can come and rent movies. And yeah, I got a job there, which was my first as a kind of like video librarian, essentially. So cataloging and, you know, and hiring out movies to people. And I loved that job. It was a brilliant job. So much so that even though I left it and moved back to Australia, I came back to England and worked in the video shop again at a later stage. Um, and now I still have a very small silent stake in the business because I love the store so much. And it's still running. And if people come to Bristol, I would highly recommend checking it out. It's one of the most amazing places with a, a crew of people that it's always employed people who are super knowledgeable about different areas of film as well. So there's always an extremely fascinating conversation to be had when you step into the store. Did you know moving to Bristol that there was a bit of like a cinema hub and a, like a film culture there or did you kind of choose that at random and then discovered it once you'd moved there? No, in fact, well, I'd, I'd been to Bristol quite a lot because my cousin went to university here. So I'd visited her over the years that she was studying quite a lot. But I didn't really engage with the film culture at that time. 
But the reason I moved to Bristol after London was because my boyfriend at the time was from here. Um, and so, you know, I'd already liked the city and had some connection to it and he did too. So we decided to move here. And actually it was kind of funny because the introduction to the film culture here was largely through the video shop. I applied for a job at Watershed at that time as like an usher, but I didn't get an interview or the mm -hmm. job, which was fine because the video shop paid a lot more than the Watershed <laughs> did. And I, I, I started going to the Cube. Um, that was where I got a lot of my experience as well. It's worth saying I volunteered at the Cube. It's an amazing place. Um, and I think anyone who comes to Bristol who kind of learns about film, film exhibition, film culture, gets stuck in at the cube at some point. Um, it's a, an, a, an amazing place. You meet loads of people and you can learn lots of different sides of the industry. So, you, you know, you start kind of tearing tickets and ushering there. And I'd worked in cinemas before, but I had not had projection training. And when I worked at the cube, you know, I had some projection chaining. I kind of worked like alongside people who had experience doing things like film press, which I'd never done before. So, you know, you, you start to kind of learn how different areas of the things work. And because it's a, you know, it's completely volunteer run. I mean, everything has a hierarchy, but it doesn't have a kind of structured hierarchy. So it's much more possible to kind of get involved and learn the skills that you mightn't be able to learn in lots of other kind of organizations. At what stage did you start dipping your toe into the world of film criticism? So that was when I actually left Bristol and moved back to Australia. I don't have a kind of a journey that is one that people seek out or do on paper. And the reason for that is because I've always had to just work to make money. I've never had the luxury of really thinking about like, what would I like to do? What would my plan look like? So I've always kind of, I worked all my the way through university as well. I've kind of always like fallen into or out of necessity had to find jobs. And when I moved back to Australia, one of the things that I, I love most about Melbourne is the Astor Theatre. It's the place where I fell in love with movies. It's the place where, I mean, it's the most beautiful cinema hands down that I've ever been to in my life. It remains that way. And I just, I adore it. So obviously when I returned to Australia, I, I you know, went to see films there and I signed up to their newsletter and in their news at their e-newsletter, George, who ran the theatre, had this other guy, Andy, who kind of helped him with the newsletter and stuff. And they were sort of struggling to do everything between them. So they had a call out for like, do people want to help us write some reviews of the films to put into the newsletter? And I was like, well, I don't have, I was doing temp work. I was like, I don't have a whole lot of jobs to do when I've got time. And so I started writing some reviews for their newsletter just in exchange for tickets. And then I ended up chatting to George and then he offered me a job in the ticket box. And then I worked in the ticket box for a while. And then he was like, do you want to do more work? And I was like, yes. So then I kind of became his assistant. And then I started programming with him and, you know, helping with the management of the theater. Like, I never chose to work in exhibition. I would like to make that clear because I actually wouldn't choose that as a career path. But I worked there because I loved the cinema. So it kind of wasn't to do with wanting. I've never wanted to be a film programmer. I still don't want to be a film programmer. That's not like a choice for me. I worked there because I loved the cinema and it meant so much to me uh, when I was growing up. It's how I discovered so many movies that I just loved being involved and helping other people discover those movies in the same way. And it's the same with the video shop. The reason I wanted to work in the video store too is that the cinema and the video store were the two places where I learned about film and where I made connections to those, those things that I loved. And I loved having conversations with people. So I kind of just accidentally built a job out of what I liked doing. And then because I, I would go to like film, the film festival in Melbourne Film Festival and other film screenings and stuff around town, I just got to know other people in the city who were doing film stuff. And that's really how I got offered my first bit of film criticism. So aside from writing for the newsletter for the Astor, you know, I was chatting with a guy who was the editor for DVD reviews for The Big Issue. And I loved House, the TV show, and he needed someone to review it. So I was like, okay. And that was the first review I ever wrote, just like, you know, for, for The Big Issue. And then over time, that just kind of continued. And then I started doing more and more. And it, it also was very complimentary to be working in a cinema and being a, being a programmer of sorts and, and being a film critic are extremely complementary roles because you have access, you need, for both of those jobs, you need access to films early, which you have if you, you know, if you're going to press screenings or, you know, screenings that are for exhibitors or whatever. So they kind of work harmoniously together because a lot of what you need to do that is like unpaid time, like not the office hours, not the actual writing of reviews or whatever, is the same thing. And so I guess that's kind of why I ended up doing both of those things at that time. Um, and then when I came back to England, 
I do a lot less film criticism now, really. I think in comparison to in Australia, I was like doing one or two or three radio shows a week and, you know, a lot a lot more writing than I do now. But I'm not kind of doing so much of it anymore, partially because I live in Bristol. And if you don't live in London, you don't really have the access to the press screenings, partially because I think it's always difficult coming to England and integrating into English things as, as an Australian. Like we're just a lot more embraceive and it was just really easy to do stuff um, right. in Melbourne. People were very keen to kind of offer advice and include me in things whereas I've always felt like I'm on the periphery here which is fine I mean I you know to some people I literally am on the periphery I've had I've actually had London film critics before ask me what life is like in the provinces so you know like it's a thing I mean that threw up a lot of questions and I want to come back to criticism because I know you wrote about it in a column recently and and you still kind of engage with that culture a lot but something that interested me about what you said there was how you, you kind of you really know that you didn't want to go into film exhibition or programming um, and so I'm kind of wondering you know how you how you came to that decision you know why is that something that doesn't interest you as a career? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because I know it's a career choice that a lot of people are really interested in. Um, and I even know that some people try to be film critics in order to go the other way to kind of get into programming. Mm. But I guess because I, I mean, I didn't know what the word exhibition was, to be honest, when I was starting programming. To me, it was just working in a cinema. You know, I didn't kind of have that sort of, I guess, vocabulary for it. I didn't know the industry stuff. And it's not so much that I think it's a terrible job or anything like that. I think it's great. And I'm, you know, I think it, if that's a thing that you're interested in, that it is a really good profession to have. And there is a way to be critical in your programming as well. And I think there are, you know, there are pluses and lots of things to be said for it. But to be honest, it's it's only ever been the passion of mine that like, oh, I love this film. I'd love to tell someone else about it. That's the only link to programming for me is like, oh, I'd love to show this film because I think it's cool. But I don't think I have the I would like to be a curator brain or like I would like to pull together all this stuff to put on it. It's just that it's something that I kind of fell into because it was part of working in a cinema that I loved. And then, I mean, this is the kind of issue with anything you do is the more you narrow down um, and kind of specialize in your life, the more you also kind of narrow your opportunities to do other things. So, I mean, you know, I'm not young, I'm 40. I can't really do a whole lot of other things at this point in time because I'd have to reskill. I have experience in film programming and, you know, like, so sometimes, and I have bills like everybody else. So sometimes I take work that I don't, it's probably not really what I'd love to do, but I don't really see loads of other options because, you know, we've all got to eat and pay bills at the end of the day. And you kind of like, all I know how to do is contextualize and talk about cinema. It's like, it's not the greatest skill in life, it turns out, but there we go. That's what, that's what I can do. And I'm, I mean, I'm aware that we have a lot to cover because you're very prolific and I'd love to talk about your time at uh, Watershed um, where you were cinema producer. And I'm, so I'm wondering if maybe you could describe the path back to Bristol um, and then getting that job at Watershed. Yeah, so when I came back to Bristol, I went straight back to the video shop and that was marvellous. And I, I will forever love the video shop. But a, a couple of years in, it became clear to me that we weren't the right fit for each other anymore. It's always hard to work out when you have to break up with somebody, but it was an amicable breakup. <laughs> but basically the store was doing so well, which is brilliant, um, as this kind of like small cinema that Dave had built that we would hire out to people for like parties and things but operating parties was not a passion of mine I've somehow always managed in jobs to fall into also like event management which is a, not a thing I want to do <laughs> at all the Astor we had loads of event management because people would get married there they'd have bar mitzvahs they'd have parties and the same thing not on the marriage scale but the same thing a little bit was happening in the video shop and I was like I don't really want to go back into event managing mm. um, I find it quite stressful and it's not really sort of like well, where I want to be so you know happily kind of decided to to stop finishing my permanent work at the video shop I still like am on very good terms with the store and I still consider it my spiritual home in Bristol a job came up at, at the watershed and it's funny because it was the cinema producer job and actually the first when I first read the description I was like there's no way I would apply for that job. Like genuinely, I was like, no, that's Maddie's job. That was the job that Maddie Probst was doing before. And mm -hmm. I was like, I know how hard she works and how stressful that job is. I do not want any bar of it. Um, but I talked to Mark and Maddie because we, you know, I was working on Cinema Rediscovered as a freelancer and I'd been freelance doing stuff with Watershed anyway. Right. And I'd had a chat with them just, you know, casually in the cafe bar as one used to do in the old world all the time. 
And actually, they were saying that the role was different. They were remodeling and reshaping things. And, you know, it kind of made me think, oh, maybe I should apply because I didn't have a job at that, like a permanent job at that time because I'd stopped working in the store. And I'd actually applied for two jobs at Watershed at that time. I applied also for um, a job which was part time there working as an editor on Rife, which is the youth led platform, um, young people do awesome stuff and write and make videos and all kinds of content um, for Rife magazine. And so I'd applied for both jobs and I, you know, kind of didn't really know if I'd be likely to get either, but, you know, went, went ahead and applied and then did get offered the job as cinema producer and was like, well, okay, I guess I better take that job. No, people don't usually offer me jobs, so <laughs> probably should take it. <laughs> And given that as cinema producer, you're kind of, you're obviously programming what the cinema shows and therefore you're almost like a gatekeeper as to what, you know, audiences are watching. I'm wondering if maybe you could talk a bit about whether you have a guiding philosophy as to how you built that program, you know, what is, what, what thought process is going into your selections? Yeah, it's a it's a marvelous question. Um, I think my answer probably might be a little bit disappointing, but in terms of the <laughs> the the films that that are on run at the cinema, Mark um, Cosgrove is a cinema curator, so he pretty much curates all of that. As cinema producer, my role was largely around context, and <laughs> I'm not I shouldn't use the word event, seeing as I've just said I don't like event <laughs> management, but um, you know, panel discussions, contextualizing films, editorial mm. ways of kind of I guess producing more to go with the cinema program. That included a lot of kind of special focus seasons and partnerships and you know watershed works in partnership with loads and loads of people so it's not as though every programming decision would be like something that came out of my head um it's really important to say that that a lot of it is working in partnership with you know africa i palestine film festival the bristol festival of ideas there are all these partners you know around the city and nationally and um and regionally that that watershed work with so a lot of those ideas there would be a mix of people bringing ideas to us and then Mm -hmm. us coming up with stuff ourselves honestly the amount that you get to generate yourself is not that high um i'd say the majority of that is cinema rediscovered that's the kind of like little curated baby that you know you get to play with but the rest of it would largely be kind of working collaboratively with lots and lots of different people and you know trying to work out what you've got screen space for so I don't know so much that there was a philosophy except for to say two things one is that obviously there's always an element of the personal that comes in um, which is both good and bad I think you know that's part of like any programming curating is that personal taste is always going to be some of it and that can be marvelous because if you get really good curators who have like amazing taste and knowledge you can get really brilliant programs it also means that it might be sometimes like maybe some of the Sunday brunches were a bit too schlocky because I kind of love B-movies you know, um, that can happen. You've got to be aware of your own biases, I think, as well. Like the things that you're like, oh, I'm always saying we should show these films. Maybe we've shown a few of those. And like, are we catering to a wide enough audience? So the philosophy generally of the um, institution is that it needs to be hitting the mark for lots of diverse and different audiences. And that obviously comes also from like the, the fact that it's funded in part by the Arts Council and the BFI. So some of that's coming from them and some of it's coming from within. And I think that, you know, you're sort of working with each department to kind of make sure like, are we catering to lots of different audiences? Are we showing lots of different things? And then within that, there might be some space for, is there a bit of editorial or curatorial voice that can kind of come through? And like I said, often for me, really that was largely cinema rediscovered or things like, you know, we would take touring programs as well, loads of them. So lots of things that, a cinema of Watershed's ilk. So, you know, I mean, a lot of the other cinemas around the country that are hubs as well, like the showroom in Sheffield and like Broadway in Nottingham, they have a lot of the similar kinds of touring packages that go around. And there's collaborating with cinemas across the that in that way across the country as well. There's like, uh, you know, I don't know how much people are aware listening to this, but like if if you're not, there are also like BFI traveling programs. There are these kind of like tent pole programs that, you know, you there is freedom to do different things within, mm-hmm. um, but there are like these umbrella programs and, and kind of like seasons and, and things that kind of come out. You're also to some degree always limited or not limited, depending on your view, um, by what's available. So in terms of like new releases, it's nuts. There's like, I don't know, 900 plus films released every year and no, like Watershed have three screens. Most cinemas like don't have, unless they're a multiplex, tons of screens. So the availability of space is always uh, you know something to think about and any collaboration you have say you've got queer vision film festival happening or um africa eye or whatever that takes out from your regular slots so that also limits your kind of new releases but then on the flip side you know with sort of like 
repertory stuff, which is really, I should have said that Yastara was a rep house. So my interest is largely rep and experimental um, cinema. Uh, in terms of like rep stuff, you are limited because it's what the studios are kind of re-releasing or have available. And since they largely tossed a bunch of their 35 mil prints in the bin, you're sort of subject to what they can give you on DCP. And also like, what the kind of access fees and stuff is for that. It's also worth saying that, you know, like it's not the same price to show every film. <laughs> and there's this kind of negotiation that goes on between making meaning and 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 making money, like art spaces um, and art house cinemas still need to pay bills. They still need to make money. They have to generate a commercial kind of industry that functions well enough for them to stay afloat. Even though they have funding from different areas, they still work on a baseline also of um, income. But at the same time, you need to make sure that if you're running an art house cinema as opposed to a multiplex, that you are offering something cultural that is meaningful. So it's about like, where does where does that cultural offer come in? What are you kind of shining a light on? What are you giving the attention to? Um, and that was, I guess, kind of like the sort of meat of my 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 post. Amazing. That was a really, really great answer. I'm wondering how your interest came to lie with repertory and experimental cinema. You know, why why is that something that you're particularly interested in? So rep is because that's what I grew up on. I mean, I, I, I literally grew up watching The Astor was always a rep house. So like, I think the first film I ever saw there was 70 mil Hamlet, the Kenneth Branagh one, you know, and it was that was on release, actually, it wasn't rep at that wow. time. But, um, but everything they showed on the weekends was rep. So they always did like a mix of kind of like newish releases and, and rep tree stuff and I, that was the cinema where I saw like Roman Holiday, Dust Boat, The Great Escape, you know all of these like really big sort of pictures I saw them there and I saw them on this you know the Astor is one of the biggest screens in the southern hemisphere um, and you know just like magnificent to behold so I really fell in love with the kind of theatrics of cinema there and then equally in the video shop I would kind of go in and be like oh you know I, I discovered that I like the twilight zone like what else would i like and then you know the guy in the video store would chat to me and be like oh there's all these like 1950s black and white or 1930s and 40s black and white kind of um sci-fi movies you know the day the earth stood still and you start watching like and then you kind of move into the color pics and you're like forbidden planet and you start kind of going down that route and so that was kind of like how i learned about film really i think um i think the first one of those that i saw was probably psycho and then i was like oh what else can i hire and i i think i stupidly rented like psycho two three and four and I'm like you know went slightly down the wrong route and then got steered back on course by the person who worked in the store but it was it, it was repertory as a love of mine because you know that's kind of a great wealth of where my sort of personal connection to it comes in and I love experimental cinema because I I love things that make you feel like something different to what you thought is possible and I think the first time I probably really realized that was at university actually I hadn't seen a lot of experimental film before that and there's a couple of films that like really like really spring to mind that made like quite a difference for me. One is Peter Tchaikovsky's um, Instructions for a Light and Sound Machine, which I'm pretty sure they showed us at university on a film print. I can't remember how or where they got it from. I don't know if they got it from the Austrian Film Museum or what, but it was amazing. And I was just like, I didn't know cinema could be like that. Like that was one of those moments for me where I was like, okay, it does this as well. And then, you know, you sort of go down the route of what else can it do? And I remember watching it, one of the Curzon cinemas in London, Tony Conrad's Flickr, which is just 30 minutes of black and white frames and just like being wowed by that. And then also at university, um, Richard Dyer, when he was one of my lecturers, and this was it by the time I got to my master's, he showed us last year at Marion Bad. And I remember just like he said, <laughs> I remember so vividly him being like, don't try to worry about what the film means. Just let it wash over you. And when we watch that, that's my favorite film now, pretty much. Um, Delphine St. Rig is just mesmerizing in that film. And I just remember watching it thinking, oh my God, I did not know cinema could be like this. And every moment that I saw a film that kind of did that to me, it was experimental films where I was like, oh, I just didn't know. I think because, you know, I grew up on narrative cinema. I grew up largely on kind of mostly linear film. I mean, obviously in like my 19, 20 year old self discovered David Lynch and all that sort of stuff. But I hadn't really discovered experimental film till I was sort of well into my 20s mid 20s and by that time I was like absolutely floored by it I just yeah I still think that the the kind of the most amazing feeling or surprising effect I can get from a film is when I'm like wow I didn't know that using a camera or you know like you could create this like it's just remarkable the craft and the art of it to me 
And given, you know, this taste and preference for, you know, innovative and experimental cinema, and that I know you co-authored a report that um, Europa Cinema has commissioned on, you know, innovation in audiences and driving new audiences to our cinemas. I'm wondering how you kind of balance those two things, your personal taste and the desire to sort of expand audiences beyond those who might typically come to uh, a cinema with again, what you maybe have to program and, and new releases, you know, how are you, how are you combining those two things? Yeah, that's really interesting because I think, I think it's always been, again, that thing about like, oh, I like this. I wonder if other people would like it. But also I've always thought that like a lot of that stuff isn't super popular just because people haven't seen it or haven't experienced it. Cause that's that's my experience like I grew up in the suburbs you know in a very sort of like mainstreamy existence where I would never have found in the place that I lived in Melbourne in the you know southeastern suburbs I would never have found this stuff like it's kind of like yeah but when I did find it I thought it was amazing so I always think I'm not everybody will but like lots of people might think this is amazing but they probably just haven't seen it yet or they don't know it exists and I think that way about lots of stuff and I'm sure there's huge universe of things for me still to discover out there not just film but in all art forms where it's like well yeah until you know something exists how can you there's those those reasons and those tensions about like why things circle the mainstream and you know of course it's important that counterculture has its traversing kind of roots outside of the mainstream that's really super important once it gets close in it just kind of does get assimilated and then it you know becomes something else but at the same time, it's also like, well, it's, it's partially also because it's kind of held there and it's not it's not shown in more mainstream sort of spaces. I mean, I always say that, like, if you look at really big blockbuster movies that are the most mainstream thing, if you're like on the other end of the spectrum and you don't watch that stuff and you see that stuff, it seems experimental. Like, I don't know what is going on in Fast and the Furious 7 or 8 or whichever one it was <laughs> that I watched. I genuinely was like, how do people follow this? There's like somebody having a conversation with someone hugging them. And then immediately after there's an explosion, I was like, I don't understand the, the editing process. Like to me, that's wildly experimental. But to somebody else whose language it is that they watch that stuff regularly, it makes total sense. And I think it's this, you know, it's the same with experimental film or with anything. If you, if you know that language, you're kind of going to understand it. And so it's always that first point at which you kind of encounter something. So, I mean, yeah, to one degree, um, you know, there's sort of like external or innovative practices, but at the same time, they're also just, it's just a way of doing things or, you know, or a, an aesthetic or a form or a format or a kind of a type of something. And I think we all just get differently versed in these things. Um, and, th and that's why I do think actually in terms of like, you know, programming, it's really important, in my opinion, that you have teams of people programming because what you want is you want those different areas and pockets of expertise um, to bring things together because that's really how you shape a great program. I think that the worst programs are the ones where they have like one person doing everything you know, because then it's sort of like, well, it's that person's idea of like what is important you know because we're all if we're involved in those things then whether we ch we think of ourselves that way or not we've elected we've been, been elected cultural tastemakers and so you've got to be kind of like I'm not saying like oh that's such a important role you know on the one hand I want to sound kind of like I'm sort of aggrandizing myself but I think that you need to be aware of the the power that you have to even though it's you know it's not like top political power in some ways, but it is in that everything carries a, a weight and ideology, a, a kind of like system to it. And, and anything you're putting out there is going to have that kind of exchange. So I think, you know, and on the in sense of like to bring in the Europa cinemas idea around um, cinema innovation, a lot of that is to do with just new ways of finding to connect with and build communities. Um, and again, that really is down to that thing about collaboration and partnership. And this is why, you know, I think you've got to have multiple people working on, on film programs and art programs and any kind of programs really, because in order to kind of really make people feel like that, that space, that venue, that art is for them, they need to feel like that it, it's kind of like offered on a, I mean, everything has a relational power dynamic, so it's never going to be completely equal, but on a more equal footing than one that is kind of top down people just saying, this is like, this is art. This is what you should look at. It needs to be more like, here's a thing we love that we think is really interesting. Would you like to come and see it with us and we can talk about it? I think that's a better approach. And I think that's the kind of idea behind a lot of that sort of like innovative practice for communities. And you can kind of see how that then translates to criticism, right? As opposed to it being, okay, good cinema, bad cinema, this is my opinion, and everyone shares it. It's, it's yeah, it should be more about 
sharing a passion you have that other people might share that's we'll, certainly we'll my opinion <laughs> <laughs> that's my opinion it may not be popular but that is that is what I think yeah and let's talk a bit about criticism because I know at Watershed you sort of headed up their critics workshop within the kind of already established um, cinema rediscovered festival um, and so I'm wondering what was your ambition behind that why was it important for you to create that space where young critics could kind of come and learn and aspire yeah, so the Critics Programme, we started actually the first year the festival started, which was 2016. Um, and so it was before I was working at Watershed. And it actually came out of um, frustration with a panel from This Way Up uh, the year before. So there was a panel that was about the state of film criticism at This Way Up in 2015. And I thought it was deeply disappointing, the comments that some of the panellists made and the sort of like lack of interest that they kind of had with changing or rethinking or even including other people in in the kind of critical landscape and I just thought that just doesn't represent everybody at all like and you know as someone who loves criticism how disappointing to attend any panel on criticism where the people there kind of don't really seem to care too much about it so I thought, no, we'll have a, a little critics program where, you know, and also because um, I did a critics program when I was in my 30s I, at the Berlinale, I did their talent press and I got a lot out of that experience. And I wondered why is there not a critics program in the UK? Because there was not one at the time. And on a traveling roadshow that the BFI did, I asked them, um, you know, would you not think about doing one of these in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. And they basically said that they weren't interested because it wasn't audience development, which is not where they which is where their money was going so I was like okay well that's disappointing nobody wants to do this and then Maddie was kind of like well we could do one I mean it won't be big scale but we could do one and so we were like okay we'll do one and basically just did it because there was a space for it and nobody I don't know why no one in the UK seemed to have any interest in doing it to be honest it seemed wild to me but nobody wanted to do it so we were like okay we'll do it and it's great because it gives the opportunity then to meet people who are coming up with an interest in doing that, who, and I think it's, it's a shame. The UK is a bit of a cliquey close shop a lot of the time. And it's like, you need to ask somebody who's already doing it questions. There are questions you are going to have as you're coming up doing this, that you need to be able to ask someone. And not every, every door seems to be open to that. Even though I think that a lot of doors might be if you knocked on them, but like maybe people don't feel like they can. And so it was sort of about having a space for actual discussions and writing and thinking about film and kind of engaging with the cinephilia side which is just the passion and the love and also like the practical thing of like hey you can ask questions and you know maybe we can answer them about like what's easy what's difficult like and you know even basic questions like I remember when I was first starting out in Melbourne I needed someone and I had them thankfully but you need someone who you can say is this a good fee for this should I be getting paid like you know, all of that sort of stuff, like, oh, or like, you know, should I be doing this? Or like, what do you think about what is the experience you have? Because I, I remember I got asked to host my first panel hosting or Q&A, Q&A hosting. And I think I got just got asked to do it for no money or or a very low fee. I think it was like, maybe it was low fee. In Australia, I think they offered me like $100, which is not much there. And, and I said yes, because I didn't have a benchmark for what it should have been. And then I talked to a friend of mine and he was like, no, you should be getting paid $300 to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the reasons you need to say no is because one, you're getting underpaid. Two, you're undercutting everyone else's work, which means no one's going to get paid $300 if someone else is doing it for $100. So you're actually like ruining the industry for everyone by accepting that work at that rate. And the thing is that, you know, we still don't really have very good published rates on like what people get paid for Q&As for hosting panels, for appearing on panels, for introducing films, for et cetera, et cetera. And we should. And the more people don't talk about it, the more they protect their own private interests and don't help the rest of us. And it's not actually very good. So one of the other things the Critics Program, you know, sort of aims to do is be really realistic about like, here are the options. I'm not going to tell you what to do or what not to do, but I'm going to explain how it is and sort of get a few people with um, other people as well. We get different speakers with industry experience who can tell you their experiences and you can glean from that a sense of what it's like. Because also I think, you know, if we're going to continue to build a critical model, we need it to be ethical or we need to be aiming for it to be ethical. And the only way to do that is to share information. Keeping information private helps precisely no one. Even things like, you know, 
oh, I need to get screeners for films. I don't know who to contact at the district. It's like, just share the contact information or, you know, share information with people who genuinely want it for, not for weird aims, but for, you know, really legitimate purposes. And I, I think there's just too much closed doors. So the idea of the program is just to kind of help do that. And also then what happens, I hope, and I think it has the few iterations that we've had, the participants build their own network with each other, which is super important because obviously, again, you know, I'm 40, like ultimately they probably don't really after the course really want to like hang out with me, but they might want to hang out with each other and kind of like continue that discussion with each other so that they've got that support network there because I know you know coming out of the Berlinale like some of the people that I was on that program with I kept in touch with in various ways and and I think that that friendship and that sort of sense of oh I can talk to someone else about this or I got treated badly by that publication I I like or I didn't like you know whatever the question or the thought might be there's someone you can go to and I think that support network's really crucial because if you're freelancing especially you you know I mean some people might be a member of a union but a lot of people aren't and they don't have an employer and they're their own employer and they've got to run their own business and suddenly there's kind of like there's a lot that's missing that you've got to find a way to set up for yourself. Mm. I mean you raised a very important point about money and it's something I want to continue talking about a little bit. I think you know it's that thing where we kind of assume this information should be publicly available right and so when it isn't we kind of attach maybe a shame or something to it that inhibits our asking it. So I'm wondering at what stage you started feeling comfortable kind of talking about money and asking for fees and, you know, just confronting this uh, obscurity that we have around talking about money. So for me, it's both right away and also never. So like, I'm always like uncomfortable a bit asking about it, but I also ask for it always and ask about the terms right away. The first email I'll send back to anyone when they send me an email about anything will include a question that says, is there a fee for this? <laughs> like, I can, what, I can corroborate. I always ask. It doesn't necessarily mean I won't say yes to it, even if there is no fee, but I always ask the question first because then I can evaluate whether or not I want to do it based on thinking about a lot of different things. And I take this, I love this quote from Charlie Shackleton. He used to say that if they have an office, then they should be paying you, right? So like there is a difference between doing something for an activist cause that you believe in for a friend that you're helping support their venture or for something that has mutual gain for you and the other person or whatever. There are reasons to do things for free. I'm not saying that there are none, but I think there is a difference between somebody who has a business needs to pay you. you Do they have employees? Do they, you know, do they... Are they making money? Because if they're making money out of it, then you should be sharing in that. If they're not making money as a passion project or an activist cause or something like that, then it's for you to weigh up. And I always say it's then it's the individual's decision. You know, you decide whether or not that's worth your time based on what is important or not important to you, but you're never obliged to do anything. So asking the question, it's also, it's not rude, (laughs) you know, terms of employment or terms of engagement for anything. I think, you know, if you had any question about if someone asks you to do something and you're like, well, will it be like this or will it be like that? That's legitimate. And to be honest, if they're offended by you asking for money, then I'd be like, well, then I don't want to do your project anyway, because it should be a legitimate question. There shouldn't be a stigma attached to it. It's completely reasonable, Um, especially when this is how I make my living. This is how I support myself and my child is by doing stuff like this. So if I don't ask that question, then I would, you know, potentially be working constantly and exploiting myself for, for no good reason. So I think it's super important. I notice, you know, there is, there are, there are people who feel more confident and less confident and they are, they are along the lines you would think they're along gender lines, they're um, along socioeconomic line, you know, those kind of disparities are there that like some people just go in asking or assuming and some people don't. There's also a thing in this industry that I want to be really clear about that I think a lot of people don't know is that sometimes and quite often there is money, but they only give it to you if you ask. And I think that's a dreadful practice. I just want to be clear about that. But I also want to be clear that it exists. So don't not ask about money because maybe they're like, oh, well, if they don't ask me about money, I won't pay. But if they ask me about money, I'll find some in my budget. So ask because maybe they have some. It's not rude to ask. And if anybody ever makes you feel like that, then don't work for them because that's like bullying, basically. Um, It's completely fair and reasonable to ask about money. And I think being partially, having grown up in Australia and being partially Australian helps me with that because I know British people are really weird about money. They don't like talking about it. They get very nervous and uncomfortable. And I think people don't, because of the class system here, people feel very uncomfortable sharing that level of information about themselves because it reveals things about how 
how well they're doing. But I, I still believe that if we want to have an ethical, sustainable and fair and equitable um, industry, then it absolutely is paramount that people just get over that, start sharing and talking and being really open about what things cost and what they get paid. And, you know, I mean, that, that for me is also a really crucial thing to talk about on the critics program is like, just don't be shy of asking. Um, if you feel comfortable doing something for free, that's essentially always going to be your choice. But remember that also if you are doing things for free with paid organizations, that you're probably undercutting someone else who makes a living at it. It's just worth thinking about. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's going to be so valuable to so many people listening. I mean, me as well. I think we can always stand to kind of, yeah, be a bit bolder with what we're asking for. I know that you're you're now an editor of Critic Reviews at Mubi. So I'm wondering what prompted the decision to step away from Watershed and return perhaps more prominently to criticism and what it is that you're doing there, if you can speak a little bit about that. So my job at Mubi is one that fits in very well with my lifestyle right now. And the move away from Watershed is partially caused by the pandemic and partially caused by just my lifestyle um, and changes in that when I returned from maternity leave, my job had to be reassessed and it became a part-time role, which actually suited me because I was still looking after my son. But the reality of doing that job part-time just didn't really work out. Um, Mm -hmm. at all for me so I decided that wasn't working this role became available at movie and I was a good fit for it so uh, essentially I there's a section on the website um, under each film where there's critics reviews and it has a, a quotation and a link to all sorts of critics reviews. It used to be called Critics Roundup. It was a separate website, but Mubi right. now um, essentially own it. And so myself and another critic, Leonardo Goy, we work on that. We check all the films, read all the reviews, select reviews and quotations and, and load them up to the website. Um, and it's just a really good fit because it's the kind of work that I can do at any hour of the day. So I can do it when my son's napping. It's not like a, a nine to five job. It doesn't kind of involve that sort of thing which you know is is very important right now because I don't know how a lot of people return to the workforce after having children I genuinely think it's incredibly difficult I don't Mm. think it's made particularly easy and even coming back part-time is quite hard um, to sort of fit in especially under the pandemic conditions because you know we're all locked in our houses and Mm. we're all trying to like do everything in one space so yeah kind of returning to work was a little bit difficult in that sense after I had a, a small child but I love Mubi so it's a great company to now be working with. And I mean, on that, how do you how do you prioritize your time when you're kind of balancing multiple projects and kind of multiple selves? You know, where do you decide what projects to work on? Yeah, another really interesting question. So I guess I'm, I've always with anything that comes in, I always weigh it up based on a number of different criteria that are important to me. And as I said, one of the first questions I always fire back is if it's paid or not to work out whether or not it's going to be financially useful for me to do it. How much of my time will it take up is always a really important question for me, like realistically, like, you know, will this take an hour? Will it take five hours? Will it take a day? Like, what is the kind of time expenditure on this? And that includes like the emailing back and forth, the admin, et cetera, because you've got to build that in when you're kind of freelancing or running your own business, that all of that also doesn't needs to be part of that kind of price tag of of evaluation that you have. So I and and then, you know, do I think the project's interesting? Am I interested in it? Or do I want to do it? Always has to be a big question. Sometimes I have to be I'm I'm a very yes person when people ask me to do things. So sometimes I have to be a bit strict with myself and say, do you really want to do this? Is this just going to be an unfulfilling use of your time? In which case say no. Um, because I only have so many hours and most of them are required that I am looking after a small person so that's that's my major priority and then my work obviously is important to me but it has to now fit around that so I just have to evaluate each thing individually and go okay well you know what am I going to get out of this and usually it's either or it's a combination usually if I say yes it's a combination of there's some level of personal fulfillment or passion involved in it. So I don't really do things that aren't. Um, and then like, you know, is it, yeah, is it financially something that's going to be a good use of my time or something that I'm going to appreciate doing? Because honestly, life is short. And otherwise, like if I've got a spare hour, I might like to take a bath and read a book. <laughs> yes, very, very true. And then we have to talk about your column. At, I hope I'm not mangling this pronunciation, but Uberquarian is how Yeah. And you reflect on a myriad of topics. I've been really enjoying the ones you've written about kind of the film festival experience and film criticism. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, how you come up with sort of ideas and flesh those out for columns. But then also if you could speak to the experience of what it's been like being a film critic during the pandemic 
and how you've negotiated that experience. Yeah, so um, my column at Ubiquarian, it's actually on a mini hiatus at the moment, just taking a little pause. I love writing that column and I'm incredibly grateful to Marina Richter who has given me the space to do it. Um, Marina and I were on a jury together in DocuFest a couple of years ago and uh, struck up a friendship and, you know, um, obviously in pre-pandemic times would sometimes see each other at film festivals. Um, And yeah, she gave me the opportunity to write a column in a way that most people don't get which is that I really have complete freedom to choose what I write about Mm. which is a rare and beautiful thing and I think it's a shame that there's not more criticism like that um, because I suspect we'd get some really interesting stuff if people would give faith to the writers a little more I I mean I don't mind saying that uh, pitching is my most hated thing I hate pitching I absolutely hate it I hate trying to distill for someone what my idea will be before I've really thought it out I really know what I'm writing about when I'm writing that's kind of part of my process is I find like an essayistic approach in that I'm searching for something when I write and the the act of writing is how I discover where I'm getting to. So I find pitching really difficult because I'm sort of trying to tell the future in a way. It doesn't always pan out that way for me. So the the column, I write about what's on my mind at that time. It's a, you know, bi-monthly column. So every couple of weeks, there's usually a film I've seen or something I've read or something I've come across that is like, kind of sparked some thought that won't leave me alone and it comes from the thoughts that won't leave me alone really you know that I'm sort of like oh I'm kind of grappling with this or I'm wondering about this or I'm feeling this and and sometimes that's the films unfortunately I think in the pandemic it's been slightly less films and more writing because I found it super hard to engage with film festivals over um this last year I just absolutely I'm sick of it. I don't I don't want to sign up to or get accredited for any film festivals at the moment because the last few I've just like barely watched anything anyway because it's just not a festival in your home. <laughs> it's really not. Like the thing I love about festivals is meeting my international colleagues and my friends that I don't see all that often except in those spaces, having amazing conversations and discovering things I wouldn't otherwise. But without that dialogue, it just feels so empty and if I'm watching a film on my own on my laptop or on my television and then like you know it's two in the morning and I'm like sitting by myself do I have a drink and a discussion on my own I mean this no and you know I just Twitter is not the same I mean yes you can do zooms and there are ways of kind of like trying to manufacture some of that but it just isn't hasn't been the same for me and I just really have not engaged very well with with film in the same way over the last year And I think, you know, that's okay to say. I think we were maybe wanting to sort of be supportive of film culture in any way at the start of the pandemic and just be like, yes, it's great that we found a way to sort of replace what has been lost. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's perfect or that it has to stay. You know, it's it's okay to treat it as temporary and want to go back to maybe some of the way that we did things before as well I'd also love to know how you stay creatively energized you know you kind of mentioned there, sort of like reading things or watching things that spark interest but is there anything else you sort of rely on when you're you know maybe feeling a bit foggy of the brain and need to you know get your creative juices flowing yeah I have several things but I don't always have time for them (laughs) in an ideal world (laughs) I'm a fan of morning pages I think they're brilliant and I recommend people do them Um, and you know I'm also a fan of Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. It's a great practice. I don't have time for it at the moment, but I really do think it helps. Writing every day, anything just kind of gets you in that mindset, that headspace. It kind of gets things and thoughts flowing. So uh, I think that's great. I also, in the same kind of line of stuff, I love yoga. And I think that that's a really great way of kind of like setting intention and and space for yourself. I've already mentioned that I love reading in the bath. I think that's one of the most like nice, relaxing things to do. Those are things that kind of also help feed me. But also I do um, quite a lot of improvising um online actually on zoom mostly in this last year and that really helps keep me um responsive and creative i think because you're constantly responding to whatever's in front of you um there's no you know so there's no script there's no pathway so that immediacy also is something that i kind of thrive on but those are just like my personal kind of things like i said an ideal day would be that I did all of those things, but probably <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> and is that comedic improvisation? Like, yeah, like sketches? Yes and no. So I do a little bit more emotionally grounded um, long form improv than I do short form games. I mean, I do like the kind of comedy short form jams and stuff as well, but I- I'm a little bit more interested in the kind of like uh, emotionally connected long form stuff. And then coming towards the end, I'd love to know if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career, or I know we've talked about not distilling things down to bite-sized chunks, but if you can distill something into your biggest learning curve, what would it be? 
Yeah, there's a couple of things that have been pretty impactful for me. One was when I was on the Bill and Ollie Talent Press program and Donna Linson said, this doesn't have to be your full-time job. And I thought that was an incredibly simple thing to say in some ways, but it changed my mindset. Um, I think I kind of thought that like to be a film critic, you had to like only be doing that and you don't. (laughs) And you don't have to, you can be as prolific or not as you want to be. Mm -hmm. I think there's this real sense that I am very fatigued by that like we need to do things fast. We need to get things out quickly, like hot takes, quick ideas, reviews, quick give us, you know, an opinion, quickly get stuff out there. But actually I, I don't think that that leaves much space for critical thought and I I kind of like things that are slower and sort of take their time. I don't produce as much in that sense now, but I feel like the quality of what I produce is better. Like capitalism makes us think that being fast and and prolific is important, but actually that's just somebody's, that's capitalism's idea of a standard and my personal standard isn't that anymore. Um, My personal standard is to produce things of quality and passion that I believe in um, and something that I feel strongly about. So that doesn't have to be fast, (laughs) which is kind of nice. It lets myself off the hook there and gives me the freedom to do things the way that I want to. So I would say judging yourself by your own standards is super important. Um, It's very easy, particularly if you go into the mess of social media to kind of like get caught up in the idea that we must all be doing, producing 20,000 like fascinating Instagram accounts about something specific in the wall in a film or that we must all be performing our criticism or performing our work for each other. But actually you don't. I mean, you can, that's one way of doing it and lots of people do it and many of them make a living, I'm sure, but you don't have to do it that way. And I think there's so many gaps, like so many gaps. Everybody writes about the same shit, but there's stuff nobody's writing about. Mm. There's tons of it. So like, if you wanted to come into this space, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. You could just do something else, something different. You could write about the films nobody's writing about. You could write about the areas of the industry nobody's writing about. You could not write. You could, you know, you could make art about them. You could make videos or audio or performance. You know, a friend of mine, we do a, uh, I said I was into improv. We do a improvised movie podcast where we improvise missing scenes from films that nobody wants or asked for (laughs) for ourselves because it's a form of inquiry into cinema. I'm just saying that there are so many options that are not necessarily what you see. And to be honest, if you're just emulating what you see, it's already there. So it might actually, I would say in my opinion, it is actually probably better in the sense that it would be richer for the industry and the culture as a whole to do something that isn't already there um, and to not just do what everybody else is already doing and do what works for you. The thing that makes your criticism stand out or different is that it's yours. So if you remove that, if you take that away and just model yourself on what already exists, then it's not interesting or unique anymore. Then it's the same thing that's already there. Um, There's already a lot of people writing reviews that are mostly a synopsis with like an opinion at the end. You could continue to do that if that's what works for you. That's cool. But there's a ton of other ways of engaging and there's a ton of other approaches that you could take. And the possibilities are really as limitless as the imagination. So uh, I don't know why we're so cornered into one thing. I would just say free yourself from the constraints of thinking that you've got to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah, a really, really beautiful sentiment. Um, And then finally, what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem you'd like to platform today? Fascinating question. And I never know if like the things that I pick are like, I don't know what constitutes hidden. Sorry, I'm I'm (laughs) always going to like dissect the question. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, what does hidden mean? Because then I think, well, if I found it, it's probably not that hidden. I'm not really sure that I kind of know the hidden depths of cinema. I guess a film that we showed a few years back at Cinema Rediscovered that really amazed me that not only had I not seen till it was shown but I'd never even heard of it previous to that and I'm sure that that shows a level of my own ignorance but um is Leslie Harris's um just another girl on the IRT and that film just had kind of disappeared it was Sundance and she was like a contemporary of Spike Lee and you know Tarantino and all these people who went on to have really amazing careers but as a black woman, she just didn't kind of get the same career as them. And it's because she never really kind of got funding for the next sort of feature, even though Just Another Girl in the IRT was formally, aesthetically, um, you know, story-wise, just brilliant, really amazing, innovative cinema. And it was loved. It was, you know, adored on release. But then it kind of just 
disappeared and actually we had Leslie Harris come over for Cinema Rediscovered and she also appeared at the BFI South Bank um, with the th- she came with her own 35mm print of the film because the film's out of circulation like you cannot get this film it was sort of like where do we see it we can't see it like Leslie's going to bring her 35mm print and she's going to introduce and show it and it was incredible I just remember sitting in the cinema thinking why have I not seen this and not only why haven't I seen it why have I never heard of it and I think there are so many films like that that you know I just don't know which ones to champion because I'm sure I haven't seen enough of them. But that was that was one that definitely spoke to me. I mean, there are there are people who know this better than I do. I would say go seek out Somer's books, um, you know, and everything that they are doing. Um, there are you know brilliant people who are kind of unearthing female directors making loads of amazing stuff that um, is an education to me. It's kind of that dual thing of being exciting that there's more to discover and sad that it hasn't yet been discovered, but always a good opportunity to yeah, talk about something new. Tara, thank you so much. It's been such an enriching conversation and it's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you're particularly interested in criticism and curation, I recommend digging out my episodes with Anna Bogotskaya, Karina Antrobus and Rachel Pronger. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday, but in the meantime, have a wonderful cinema-going week. Mm-hmm.